The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Eshkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back corner to your right. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Well, good morning. My name is Mark. I'm on staff here, and believe it or not, this is the most subtle notebook I could find to put my stuff in this morning. I couldn't find my other one. Uh, Well, if you've been here with us this summer, we've been going through the life of David uh, in a sermon series called Dispositions of the Heart. Uh, And David is one of the more important people in the Old Testament because of how he relates to Jesus. Um, From a human standpoint, Jesus was born into a family that was descended from David because God had promised that hundreds and hundreds of years before. Uh, And also from this overarching, Jesus is the greater David. He's the true king of his people. And David's history just lends itself to looking at the different facets of the human condition. Uh, David wrote beautiful poetry and songs. He was this fierce warrior. Uh, We've seen that what true friendship can look like between David and his BFF, Jonathan. Last week, Ben preached on a passage that showed the mercy of David, And this morning, we're looking at a little more tender, kind of raw-hearted side of David, looking at what a lament is. He laments for Saul and Jonathan. Um, Before we jump in, we need to spend a little time looking at what a lament is. It's not something we do very well. It's not something that comes really natural to us. We're really good at, like, anger and happiness and sadness and joy. Uh, But lament is its own thing. And in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, and almost half of those are Psalms of lament of the psalmist crying out to God, why? Or like, how much longer are you going to let this go on, God? Uh, One of the common refrains of the psalmist is, God, I see the wicked over here, and they seem to be doing really well. They're making a lot of money. Nothing bad happens to them. And I see the righteous, the people who love you are trying to follow after you, and they're just kind of floundering. Why are you going to let this happen, God? Uh, To lament is to speak your anger and your frustration to God. And even though that probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable, voicing our anger and confusion to God, 
God includes so many Psalms of lament in his word as a roadmap. It's kind of a blueprint on how to be human. Um, and so if David, he wrote over 70 of the Psalms, I think he, he knows what he's doing as a writer. Uh, and so it's, it's good to spend time with us and see what he has to teach us. Um, so let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we see uh, your people voicing their anger and sadness to you and that you are not so brittle that you can't handle that. And you actually welcome people to be real and honest with you. Uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Would you help us to see you clearly through it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so thankful that things like this are in the Bible. Uh, maybe at one point in your life, you have been a little frustrated with the church. Uh, maybe you think, well, the church just doesn't deal with suffering and injustice in the world very well. Maybe you say, well, they just kind of stick their heads in the sand and wait till Jesus comes back because he's going to make everything good anyway. And if that's you, I, I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, but if the church is functioning as it should and we're taking our cues from Scripture, not only will we have this unshakable hope for the future and a joy, but we will be able to weep about the heartbreaks of today. We'll be able to look at suffering and justice and say, this is not right. This is not good. God, what are you going to do about it? And so we need to weep with those who are weeping as just as much as we need to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I want to, what I want to pitch at you this morning is that if you are committed to Jesus, not only are you going to have a joy and a hope in this life, but you're going to be able to weep and lament as well. And as a church, we're not showing our community a full version of Christianity if we don't point out the things that are wrong and weep over it and try to do something about it. Um, Christianity does not require, and please hear this, Christianity never requires that you slap a smile on your face when you come face to face with heartbreak and tragedy. When you come face to face with the brokenness of this world and the brokenness inside your own heart, scripture never tells you not to grieve and not to weep over it. As we love to say here, it is okay to not be okay. And I hope that's always true here. So David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. If you've been with us this summer or you're familiar with these characters, it seems a little strange, this lament, doesn't it? Saul is the first king of Israel. Jonathan is his son. And Saul ends up being so jealous of David because everybody starts to like him more that he spends the last couple of years of his life trying to hunt down and kill David. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the next in line to be king, but he's also David's best friend. Uh, and he's one of the few like true heroes of the Old Testament because he gives up everything for his friend Jonathan. He gives up a throne so that Jonathan can have it and they can have his friendship. And what seems so strange to us in this lament is that David seems to praise both Saul and Jonathan equally. Verse 19, David says, your glory, O Israel, he's talking about Saul and Jonathan, your glory is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. In verse 23, he says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. And finally, in verse 24, David says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. This is so foreign to us, isn't it? Weeping over the death of a bad ruler. Uh, if someone goes against you, and again, remember, Saul tried to kill David multiple times. But if someone in your life offends you, or they wound you, or they lie to you, or they hurt you somehow, what is your knee-jerk reaction when you find out that something bad has happened to them? You don't have to say it out loud, but be honest. Joy, thank you. <laughs> you. You get a little happiness from that. You're thinking, yeah, they're finally getting their due. 
And our culture has sayings like for this, right? What goes around comes around. You get what's what you deserve. This whole idea of karma, 95% of Taylor Swift songs, right? They're all about revenge. Uh, even in politics, it seems like the meaner and the more vengeful you are, the better chance you have of getting elected. I know we're a young church, uh, but a lot of y'all probably remember when John McCain and Obama were running against each other. And McCain had this kind of town hall meeting where he was just kind of walking around, handing the microphone to people. They would say stuff. He would respond. And some people said, like, really terrible things. Um, and most politicians would just be like, yeah, you said it, not me. But, yes, they would encourage it. But if you remember, McCain takes the microphone. He's like, sir, ma'am, no. They're like, he said he's a decent man. He's a good family man. We just disagree on a few things. It was beautiful. And I don't think I've seen that in politics since. And I doubt we'll see it again, to be honest. So it's to our ears, it seems utterly bizarre that David would praise Saul after he died and he was no longer a threat to David. That David would ensure that this lament was talked to his people. He said, put it in this book. We don't have that book of Jashar anymore, but they had it and they knew it and they sang it. Uh, and there's, there's not a trace of him trying to drag Saul's name through the mud. If you were here last week, you heard the reasoning as to why David refuses to go against Saul. And that's because Saul was anointed by God. Right? David keeps calling Saul the Lord's anointed. He's the one that God said, all right, you're going to be king, Saul. Even though God didn't want him to be king, all the people were like, please give us a king. We need a strong, tall, handsome king. And he said, fine, take Saul. He's taller than everybody else. And it was a train wreck. Uh, but they had a very different view of authority than we do, right? especially in America, where we elect new leaders every few years. It's kind of from the ground up, hypothetically. Uh, leaders in the ancient world were chosen from the top down. Most of the cultures thought that God was the one who put the leaders in place. And so for David, he had this front row seat of God choosing the next king. Uh, even he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He wasn't king yet, but he was the one that God said, I want you to be the next king. Uh, David doesn't think of himself so highly as to go against Saul. Last week, we saw David had the perfect opportunity to kill Saul. And if you haven't, if you weren't here last week, you need to go read it because it's great. David and a bunch of his guys are like hiding in this cave. Saul comes in to use the bathroom and they're all like, David kill him, do it. And he doesn't do it. Again, that sounds super violent to us in this context. Uh, but David is honoring God as the one who is in really in charge. He's not trying to take matters into his own hands. Do we see that? And again, this is so foreign to us when you have TV news anchors and radio show hosts who make a good living off of just complaining about who is president. It's kind of all they do. But if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, and if you don't, we're so glad you're here. Uh, and if you've got questions, things pop up, please come talk to one of us. We'd love to take you out for coffee or just talk. Uh, don't just kind of sit there with stuff that's confusing because a lot of the stuff is very confusing if you're new to it. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, but if you are here and you consider yourself a Christian, we are called to have a different view of authority than the rest of the world. Right? In the New Testament book of Romans, this is what Paul says in chapter 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And just to be clear, this is in no way saying that civil, nonviolent disobedience is bad, right? The civil rights movement was this powerful, beautiful movement led by a ton of Christians. And the Apostle Paul was executed for civil, nonviolent disobedience. Uh, you're not, you know, the authorities of Paul's day, they were, they did not think twice about burning Christians at the stake or sending them into the arena to be eaten by lions. You're not called to blindly obey the government, but you are called to be subject to the authorities. And at the very least, what that means is you pay your taxes, you go the speed limit, 
And if you break the law of the land, you pay the consequences. And especially in the case of MLK and the civil rights movement, how much more powerful was it when they broke the law, they broke unjust laws and they suffered unjustly. That's so much more powerful than just being violent. That was MLK was very strict. I said, we're not going to be violent. We're going to break these unjust laws and take the penalty for that. It's a whole nother sermon, but David's view of authority respected the fact that it was God who put Saul in power. And that doesn't make God responsible for the evil that Saul did. But David was so focused on keeping in step with God that he didn't dare go against Saul, the king. Uh, look back at verse 22. We didn't read this, the first part of this chapter, but David or Saul and Jonathan have just been killed in battle. And he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. David is saying, look at how incredible my best friend was with his bow and arrow. And look at how awesome Saul was with his sword. He doesn't say, like a lot of us would say, oh, this guy, I'm so glad he's gone. He was always trying to throw spears at me and kill me. Uh, he's got such a bad temper. He's been hunting me in the wilderness. I'm, gonna, I'm the rightful king. I'm going to do such a better job than he is. I feel like most of us would probably say that. But David doesn't speak evil of Saul at all. He says he was a really good warrior. When he went out to battle, he fought well. And he says in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This man, Saul, has done nothing but try to kill David for the past couple years. And yet David does nothing but praise this man's abilities and his skill. In the next verse, 24, David says, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. In other words, David can see the good and Saul. I think about the last time you were angry with somebody, especially if you'd been at odds with somebody for a long time. How hard is it to say nice things about them? It's really hard. How hard is it to see their, their good sides as opposed to just their, their faults? I mean, David isn't blinded by anger here at all, is he? So what do you think allows David to do that? What do you think allows David to have this gracious, forgiving heart? We think back about David's life up until now. He's known nothing but grace from God and from other people. When he was just a kid, as we said earlier, God sent the prophet Samuel to come and anoint the next king. David was the scrawniest, youngest brother, uh, and his oldest brother was super tall, handsome, good-looking. And when the prophet came, he saw his older brother. He said, oh, it's got to be this guy. He just looks the part. God said no, and he just kind of goes down the line, and he gets to David. He says, yes, this little shrimp, he's going to be the next king. He doesn't look the part, but he's got a really good heart. Uh, and when Goliath, the giant, was mocking and terrifying the Israelite armies, God gave David the courage and the skill to take him out. God kept David safe from Saul. Saul was sending like thousands of men to come and try to find David and kill him. And Saul, or David, was always protected. Jonathan, in this unbelievable act of grace, he befriends David and protects him, and he gives up his right to the throne. David knows the grace and the forgiveness of God. And he knows that because God always makes good on his promises, David doesn't have to worry about being the one who gets revenge or making, putting things to right, right? He has seen the devastating effects of being consumed by anger and jealousy in Saul, and he's determined not to let that happen to him. In a room this size, I'm willing to bet that a lot of y'all have suffered unjustly. And if you have, you know the angerness and the bitter that comes with that. 
It's really, really hard to let go of that. Uh, but I've been encouraged, and I hope you're encouraged by this, just seeing how David is able to forgive because he knows the God who forgives. He knows that God is not only kind and patient and, for, and gracious, but he's a God of justice, and he will one day put all things to right. And today, you can know God who gave his son Jesus to pay for the sins of his enemies. And what that means is that you and I and every other single human being have gone against the God of the universe. We've lived our lives just for ourselves. We've gone against God and against others in our thoughts and our words and our actions. We've acted out of anger and jealousy and lust and greed. We've ordered our lives around ourselves as opposed to loving God and loving others. That's what the Bible calls sin, and it makes us enemies of God. God is perfect, and he will not allow anything that is opposed to him to go on forever. And so in Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, and then he died a death on the cross that you and I deserve. And then he rose again from the dead three days later, defeating death for all who follow him. And so Jesus not only forgives his enemies, he dies for his enemies, so that by faith we might become his friends. That's what gives you the power to forgive someone who has wronged you. Not just trying harder. I mean, if you've ever been angry with someone and just tried harder to forgive them, it kind of doesn't work. Then you just start feeling worse and then you get angry. It's just this endless cycle. Uh, but it's not just trying harder, but it's knowing the God of the universe who has forgiven you a lifetime of sinning against him. Are you, are you holding on to a grudge this morning? Are you holding out hope that that person will kind of get what's coming to them? You know, that maybe you'll forgive them if, if they pay for it enough. Well, do you want God to treat you that way? Do, do you want a God who only forgives you once you've earned it and once you've kind of put in your stripes, put in, the, put in the time? Or do you want the real God who loved you and forgave you when you hated him, when you wanted nothing to do with him? Do you know what kind of powerful witness we could have in this city, in this community, if we were known for loving our enemies and forgiving our enemies? If we refuse to fight evil with evil, but as Paul says, overcome evil with good? You and I don't have to be overcome with this desire for revenge uh, because we worship a God who promises perfect justice and who forgives us fully and freely. Amen? Uh, one more thing we need to see in our passage, and it's really something that's not there. Usually when the Bible talks about the death of a king of Israel, it'll say if they were a good or bad king. It'll say he, he did what was evil in the sight of God or he did what was right in the sight of God. And like 80% of the kings do what was evil in the sight of God. Uh, but notice for Saul, it doesn't say anything like that, does it? It says that Israel prospered economically under Saul and that he was a good warrior. But in terms of spiritual leadership, Saul doesn't get anything. And not to be a downer, but so many of us, myself included, we can get so wrapped up in providing for our families, kind of tucking enough money away for the future, enough savings we want our kids to be taken care of. We want to build up our little empire so we'll have enough, whatever that means, and we neglect passing along the faith to others around us. Right? Telling others about Jesus, building them up in the faith. It's so easy for that to take a back seat to things like work and play and hobbies. Those are all great things, uh, but it's, is that really what you want to be remembered by? By being successful? By doing that one thing really well? Uh, you know, how, how well we were able to entertain ourselves? Now, the good news is you can minister to others while doing all those good things. 
right? You can minister to others at work and at play, but we've got to be constantly mindful of how we do that, right? How am I using my words? How am I treating others? How am I treating my enemies? Uh, how am I showing integrity at my work? How am I glorifying God in my exercise and my hobbies? And I want to say that like the 300 of you ladies who go to the YMCA classes, uh, I feel like it's most of the women here, you guys do an incredible job of this. I mean, you all get together and you go exercise and you encourage each other and you pray for each other. Keep it up. Uh, if you need community or looking for community, just join the Y. And I think at any point in the day, you can go to a class and there'll be restoration folks there. Uh, in our passage, it's really Jonathan who gets the most praise here, though. Look back at verse 26. David says, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Uh, David and Jonathan's relationship, it reminds me a lot of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, because I have to talk about them at least once a sermon. Uh, those men adored their wives, and you should read their biographies sometime. They both have beautiful love stories of how they came together. But as you read their biographies, I don't know when they actually hung out with their wives. <laughs> they both taught, they were both professors at universities, and they wrote these timeless literary masterpieces. And when they weren't doing one of those, they were like drinking together at the pub, discussing what they were writing. Uh, these men had deep, deep friendships. They spent a lot of time with each other. And David is so distressed by Jonathan's death because Jonathan loved him deeply. He was a good friend. Jonathan gave up everything to be David's friend. He risked his life to protect David so that David could become the good king of Israel. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is, are you like Saul? Maybe mildly successful, maybe really successful, but ultimately focused on yourself and your own kingdom. Or do you know that there is a greater king in King Jesus? This king of kings who is over every other authority. The kind king who loves the weak and the helpless. The forgiving king who died for his enemies. Uh, the eternal king who defeated death and rose again and defeated death for anyone who trusts in him. King Jesus who will reign forever and ever in a world without sin or death or sorrow. King Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. Amen. And let me pray. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you not only that he is a good ruler, but he loved us at our worst when we wanted nothing to do with him. He forgave us when we wanted nothing to do with him. So Lord, would you let us just get an ounce of that grace and forgiveness towards enemies? It seems unthinkable that we could ever make our enemies into our friends, but that's what Jesus did. And so would you give us the power to do that? Would you give us humble hearts that don't think too highly of ourselves or how much we were wronged? Uh, but let us put into perspective just how wronged or how much we have wronged you and how much you continue to love us. This is in Jesus' name. Amen. Do that. Would you give us humble hearts that don't think too highly of ourselves or how much we were wronged? Uh, but let us put into perspective just how wronged or how much we have wronged you and how much you continue to love us. This is in Jesus' name. Amen.